and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. When I was first introduced to Wendy Smith's work, my ears perked up right away. Wendy earned her PhD in organizational behavior at Harvard's Business School and is currently a professor of management at the University of Delaware. And her research focuses on strategic paradoxes, specifically around how leaders and senior teams effectively respond to contradictory agendas. If you follow this podcast and you've been here before and you've read my book, Shift Your Mind, you know that it's based on the foundation that when matters. And we need to be one way during some times and another way in other times. And Wendy studies paradox. 
She studies how organizations and their leaders simultaneously explore new possibilities while exploiting existing competencies. And in past podcast episodes, we've talked about this idea of exploring and how curiosity is really, really useful and how exploiting and sharing what we know with conviction is also really useful. So Wendy is all about paradox and the power of and instead of just the power of or. She teaches leadership, organizational behavior, and business ethics. She's taught MBAs and undergraduates at University of Delaware, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania, specifically at the Wharton School. She was awarded the University of Delaware MBA Teaching Award in 2016. She's also taught executive and senior leadership teams how to manage interpersonal dynamics, emotional intelligence, high-performing teams, organizational change and innovation, managing in times of crisis, and managing strategic paradoxes. Specifically, this conversation really does dive in to the power of paradoxical thinking. Her book, which is the focus of today's conversation, is titled Both and Thinking, and I highly recommend you check it out if you're interested in leadership, decision-making, and communication. So I know you're going to love this conversation. So here is Wendy Smith. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I mentioned to you before we started recording, I owe Brant Tillis a thank you for introducing me to your work. And then I started seeing your work everywhere, as it often happens. And I asked Brant, who did a deep dive into your background and your work, and I think you all might have connected. And I said, hey, what's a question I should ask Wendy? And he said, ask her about BBYO. So I'm going to leave that open-ended, and I'd love for you to share your experience with BBYO and how it helps shape how you see the world. Brian, it's so nice to be here, and a shout-out to Brant. I absolutely love, um, such an honor when somebody reads your work that you don't know and reaches out to you. So anyone out there that's listening, uh, if you are reading somebody's work and you're excited by it, reach out to them because that is truly an honor. And indeed, Brant made this connection that... Um, I don't often talk about, but is a significant part of what has shaped me and my ideas, which is BBYO, this youth group that I uh, was a member of as a teenager, as a kid in high school, and that I um, took off my very first year of university to be the international president of this youth group. And it was that experience. I had the opportunity to travel around the world. It's a youth group of about 20,000 kids, I, teenagers, youth, that uh, was really focused on leadership, helping youth to step into, own the kinds of challenges, issues, opportunities, uh, create uh, their space and learn how to lead. And I think it was that opportunity that invited me to think about how leadership is such a core value and something that really makes a difference in the world and that has introduced me or um, gotten me excited about the profession that I am in, which is to be a professor of leadership, to invite people to think about what they want to get done in the world and how they do it. And I'm happy to tell stories about that and more about that, but that indeed was a significant part of who I am. When you say take off, is this a gap year before you started at university or you went to university your first year and then in between your first and second year, you took that year off? That's right. At that time, I took it. It was a gap year. At that time, the elections for this position happened in August 
and uh, literally happened the week before I was supposed to go to Yale. And I gave them a bit of a heads up and checked with them what would happen if I took a gap year. But I took a gap year uh, a week before I was prepared to go. And in fact, Brian, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I uh, am part of the opportunity was really about happenstance and taking taking uh, jumping in to take opportunity where seize opportunity where it happened. I um, had been uh, president of my chapter. I had been, I, I ran for president of the region. I was really involved. And then I ran for an international office, which would have been a, a target into becoming the international president. I was really excited about this possibility. And I lost that office. I did not win the year before to be one of the international officers that would have set me up to be international president. And it was one of the greatest disappointments I had when I was in high school because I was so excited about continuing on in leadership. And so I spent some significant time sort of licking my wounds and writing that off and thinking this was over. And it turns out from lucky happenstance that the person, the officer who had typically run the international convention wasn't able to do it that year. And they asked me to step into that role, which put me back into the conversation, back onto the scene and set me up to again to, to run for office. And I ran against a different international officer and I won. And I, I think I tell that story because uh, in some ways, in some of the black and white thinking that I was doing, you either become an international officer to, to become the international president or you don't, was not the case. And indeed, uh, they say luck uh, affords the, the prepared mind that I, you know, that it was a stroke of luck, but it was also um, recognizing that there's other pathways to things that we don't often see. It's interesting because I prepare pretty thoroughly for these. I listened to a bunch of podcasts you were on. I read your book. And it seems as though when people ask you, hey, when did you first start thinking about paradox? You go to IBM and, and studying IBM in, in grad school. And I understand why 18, 19-year-old Wendy wasn't thinking in terms of paradox when this decision is to be made, whether she should go to Yale her freshman year or take a gap year when gap years were not a thing. Um, but looking back, you created a both and. You were able to go to Yale uh, probably a year later with more maturity and, and probably uh, more emotional intelligence and leadership qualities, and you were able to experience it. I'm curious, like, why don't you talk about that uh, sort of retroactively as a probably big impact on guiding you to studying this? It's kind of the thing underneath the thing for you. Like, it's probably underneath you created a power of paradox at a relatively young age, and it probably impacted you pretty drastically. Why not talk about it? Well, kudos to you, Brian, for bringing it out and and uncovering the thing under the thing. Um, you know, it's it's funny, and this is more this is going to end up being more of a therapy session than anything else between us. But uh, and here's another one of the tensions that I think emerged for me in that role. I was uh, so I, as I said, became the um, did, ran for an international office and lost, and so. Um, what I did was I went back to Florida where I grew up and I decided to run for and become the president of my chapter. 
And so I went back to the, the motherland or went back home or went back to really focus on the chapter. And then I did become international president. And here's the irony or something that I have thought through a bit, which is that um, even as I was striving for this grand international office, the place that I felt like I had the most impact, where I really could make a difference, where I really could see the impact of my work was at the chapter level. And so I have grappled with that question, which is um, this question of sort of big platform, big picture that we strive for, and yet the distance that it creates for really being able to touch the lives of people and what that looks like. And so in some ways, that was another bit of a both and, uh, which was trying to understand what leadership is about. Is it about, you know, it, and and for sure, there was a bit of moving up the ladder in service of the status of it. I, I think that I wanted to do it also in service of the impact. And yet, where I could really feel impact was at this very local level. So um, so I think there's that underneath it as well. Uh, why don't I talk about it? Um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, I don't know. I mean, when I got to Yale, there were so many people doing so many amazing things. You sort of bury your past and it's time to move forward. But I, I don't I don't know. But I think you are right. There are so many ways in which this experience shaped me. And I am so grateful uh, for the opportunity for this organization to have created this space where I could learn so deeply what it meant to have a vision, what it meant to interact with people, to bring people along on that vision, what it meant to um, be able to not see the black and white. You know, another one of these, and I'll, I'll just say one other tension was that as soon as I got to the internet, at, one of the things that's so powerful about the organization is how much as a teenager, I had the opportunity to craft and implement the vision in my local region. Well, as soon as you get to the international level, there's much more interaction, as you can imagine, with the adults in the organization, the staff. And one of the things that I had to learn then was how to craft my vision amid other stakeholders, in this case, the professional staff, um, which was not easy to do, which was hard to do. So I, I'm just so grateful to the organization for teaching me so much at such an early level and inviting me to think about these ideas. All right. There is a question that I wrote down from reading your work. You do get into identity in your book and some, you didn't, I don't even know, even know if you name it, but some imposter syndromes feeling at of being at Yale and coming from where you came from. And as I look at your bio, it's like Yale, Harvard, uh, Penn, and yet you're grounded at Delaware. And I want to make this really clear. There's nothing wrong with the University of Delaware. I applied there. It, it probably would have been a school that I would have enjoyed uh, thoroughly and, and deeply. I have friends that went to Delaware that are brilliant and doing amazing things. And when you see Harvard, when you see Yale, when you see Penn, you see prestige. And you even brought up some of this at Yale. It's like, oh, who am I? What have I done? And I'm curious how you think about being on a campus like Delaware and a campus like Penn or Harvard or Yale, where you've spent a lot of time at these places and how you think about achievement and how we think about achievement as a society and just your perspective on that, given the, given the spaces that you've played in. Gosh, Brian, I, I might I might have to start paying you for the therapeutic uh, possibilities in this conversation because indeed I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And um, okay, so here is 
and and by the way, I'll just say one sentence, which is for anyone listening, I, I want to just say the the big idea of both and because I'll keep referring to it. But the big idea is that we live in a world where we tend to pull things apart and make a choice between them and and see the either or or see the black and white, and that we argue that's limited at best or detrimental at worst, and that there's a better way of seeing the ways these things intertwine with one another. I think that's also true in thinking about the institutions that I have engaged with. So um, so you're right, I, I tell this story, I went to Yale and I felt completely like a fish out of water. And um, Yale is an incredible place with tremendous opportunities and tremendous pressures. And so, so is Harvard. And uh, and tremendous competition. And um, it requires a certain resilience and a certain sense of confidence in order to navigate that. Well, like the, the people that are least confident about knowing who they are and what they're going to do in the world and whether they're going to succeed are college students. And so, so you're in a population of people who are asking, do I belong and what am I going to do and how am I going to do it? And it's in a space where you feel like you have to show up already knowing that and knowing that that exists. Now, don't get me wrong, and it's certainly an incredible place to be and the opportunities there are phenomenal. And uh, I also find, and I am also so grateful to being at a place now as an academic where I feel like I have a lot more freedom to be able to explore myself without feeling like I have to prove myself. And again, that could just be my the way that I show up there, right? So this sense of having to prove myself, which constrains actually experimenting and being myself along the way. So I, I think that what I would say is that these institutions uh, offer different opportunities for our growth, for our learning. Um, I'll use my colleague and friend and mentors, uh, Amy Edmondson's word, psychological safety, for the safety that we feel to be able to learn and grow and develop. Uh, they offer a whole lot of different opportunities. And I think there is a bit of a both and there as well, which is one of the things that I'm so grateful for is um, being at the University of Delaware and uh, connecting in with a broader network of people around the world that offer up the kinds of opportunities that uh, an institution like Yale or Harvard offers. So they offer connections and networks and amazing speakers coming through. And so one of the things that I've been able to do is say, well, how do I gain those? How do I get access to those kinds of opportunities, but not being at you know, Yale or Harvard. Now, to be fair, University of Delaware has put itself on the map in terms of status with our current president and first lady who are very uh, committed to this institution. Um, and at the same time, uh, when I first got to University of Delaware, one of my um, you know, fabulous mentors, a colleague, Jane Dutton, who's at the University of Michigan, said to me, you know, Wendy, our profession, academia, idea generation is a cosmopolitan profession, it not local. And by the way, she said this before Zoom and the technology that made it even easier to be cosmopolitan. But what she meant was this is a profession where we are tapped into colleagues around the world, where we create networks of people around the world. And one of the things that I have done in 
as an academic is actually build and create opportunities for people to connect around the world around these ideas of paradox and both and thinking. I have reached out, as, as you know, I'm, I'm talking to you from Sydney right now, taking advantage of sabbatical to be in networks and with colleagues in a variety of places. So I think so too in this either or of high status institution or not, uh, part of the both and has been what is the benefit of these different institutions and how can I craft that benefit in a you know craft those opportunities in a way that I am able to tap into these various different components of these opportunities both yeah I'll just pause there you mentioned Joe Biden so I ended up going to Syracuse but Delaware I applied early decision to Syracuse so I got in before I had to send in the second part of the application process at Delaware and anyone who's gone through the application process at least when I did it you want to fill out as as few of them as possible at least for me the way I thought back then uh, so I didn't end up knowing if I got into Delaware or not but um there's our our Joe Biden connection cuz Joe I think got his JD from Syracuse so th there you go ah. if, if it's good enough for Joe then it's good enough for Wendy and Brian um, all right. You've said that this feels like a therapy session a couple times. And by the way, those are typically our best conversations. So in the beginning, when people used to say that, I didn't know how to take it. But ever since I've taken it as a compliment, even though I'm not a therapist. Um, but I want to flip the script here and I'll let you become like my my uh, sharp uh, Sherpa and, and guide as we go through this. Uh, so I mentioned before that I'm dealing with a dilemma and it speaks to achievement, but not necessarily for me, but with my kids. So I have a six and a seven year old. You have twins uh, that are 16. You have a child who's 11. Uh, you're a little further ahead in the game than I am. So I want you to not just put on your paradox coaching hat, but also your parenting coaching hat. Twins are different than kids that are 14 months apart, like my situation. But I think we've both experienced some insanity in our life up until now. I feel confident about that. But I want to go to a place where we currently are thinking, which is youth sport. And I've had on David Epstein on this podcast, who wrote a brilliant book called Range, where he sort of pushes back on the 10,000 hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell made famous from Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's research. And uh, I'm in it, though. I have a seven-year-old who's decent at sports. He has his dad's genetics to some degree, so he has limits on that, I'm sure. We won't limit him. We'll see what happens. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, you never know. But here we are, and he's seven, and I see people starting to go into travel sports, and I see them starting to specialize and starting to really get their kids into highly competitive environments. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I see games where they just play, and they don't know what the score is, and there's no refs, and they're just playing. And so you've got like these two paradoxes where let's call it the everybody gets a trophy uh, side. And then you've got the side where it's like intense, crazy, like they're full time professional athletes and they're seven. And so there's a dilemma right now about, hey, what do I do with this? And I'm not mm -hmm. sure where to go because my kid wants more. He's asking, he's like, I want to get better. I want to improve. I love sports. And then there's the side of me that knows the research on burnout, that knows what happens when you specialize too soon. I've studied this stuff. My background's in sports psychology. I talked to a professional basketball client player yesterday, and he's like, don't do it. I wish I kept playing sports. And he stopped in seventh grade, not seven years old. And so here we are. Uh, I wanted to paint that picture, and I want you to help me uh, figure out how to help my kids. What do I do? How do I look at this from a paradoxical lens and maybe get both and in this situation? 
Well, so the first thing I'll say, which I love is, let's just acknowledge that we've just pitted two possibilities here. So, and in part, we pitted two possibilities because you're making a decision between where to put your kids. So, um, and, and just just to be really articulate about the process of both and thinking, the, the first thing that I would say to you is, okay, so um, let's go up a level. What What do you want for your kids down the road. So what is, in our language, the higher purpose, in some people's language, the long-term vision. But if you were to look out into the future, what do you want? I want my kids to be curious, kind, caring, understand the power of uh, belonging in a team. Um, I want them to love their parents. Uh, (laughs) I want them to have great relationships, friends, uh, and I want them to step into whatever gets them fired up and passionate and pursue that. And I do want them to compete and understand that hard work can often be fulfilling work um, and to have a work ethic and a drive, uh, what direction that goes, um, I'm kind of indifferent on. And at the end of the day, I, I like I want them to tap into their genius and their greatness in whatever way that may be. I love that. So, so resilient and independent and engaged and curious. Um, And so imagine that's your kids 10 years from now or 20 years from now as adults. And so, so then the the next step in both anding would be, okay, so we have these two options and it feels like you have a choice between them. Can we do what we call separate? So what's valuable about each of these two options in these sports? What would be valuable about the everybody gets a trophy team? What would be valuable about the highly competitive, you know, sort of, (laughs) you know, uh, bloodthirsty almost, but the, the super competitive travel uh, intense team. What 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 what's valuable about each of those options? What do you yeah. get from one? Yeah, everybody gets a tro- trophy. Emphasizes fun. Emphasizes teamwork. Emphasis emphasizes uh, enjoyment. And uh, what's to me, and I'm showing some bias here. What sport is often supposed to be about, which is joy, and you play sport. You don't work sport. So the ability to play and to play freely and to play on their own terms. Um, The other side of the coin is about improvement and growth and um, competing. And um, yeah, those are like the big, big hallmarks and discipline and dedication. Those are like the big hallmarks I think of on that side. So on one hand, one of the lessons that you're teaching your kid by being in the everybody gets a trophy is that not everything needs to be this intensely experienced. And on the other hand, the travel team is in order for you to push yourself, in order to, to move forward, look to grow, you have to surround yourself by other people who are going to support, you know, who, who are in pushing you along the way. And so one of the things that we say when in this process of pulling these things apart is then what are the underlying paradoxes that inform this decision. And this is, a, I think, the piece where it gets a little bit sort of heady or abstract, but but I'll just put it into our language for a minute to use this as an example of what it would look like. The dilemma, if you will, a dilemma is a moment in time defined in a very specific time and space where you're choosing between two different options and it's sort of begging you to make a choice. So the choice is, you know, the travel team or the, the trophy team, if you will. And the the question is, 
what is underlying the, the paradoxes are these persistent kind of ever present tensions that underlie our dilemmas and keep popping up. So in some level, there's this constant tension that you will, that if you will, of, you know, that we all feel about performing well, doing well, being in the moment and learning and growing and feeling that discomfort of learning and growth. So learning and performing is a tension, a, a paradox that comes up all the time, or this tension between, um, you know, assertion and accomplishment and status versus experience and engagement in the moment, right? And in some ways, you can go back to my my own experiences with being at Yale versus being at Delaware. It's not that Delaware is easy in any way. It's just that it doesn't, it's not shrouded in this constant demand to perform or else. Um, so so, so the, there's these underlying persistent tensions. So then the question, once you've pulled these apart is, how can you accommodate both of these approaches with one another, like how how can you do both? How can you not, how can you choose, how can you do both the travel team and the trophy team? How can you enable the conditions where your kid is able to expand, learn, push themselves, uh, develop, grow, feel in, engaged and, and accomplished, and at the same time, fun and, and enjoyment, and it's not all about the accomplishment. How could you do both of those? Yeah, where I go is zooming out away from sports, which I think we're doing. They are at a school that is elite, that is going to challenge them. And I even say the word elite, that doesn't even sound right, but is going to challenge them. And there is going to be, I don't want to say a stigma, but there's something attached to going to that school um, that is probably similar to what you feel and saying you went to Yale and went to Harvard. So they're going to get that. And I say they, because my daughter, by the way, we're just not there yet, but she's a pretty good athlete too, um, you know, in our world, uh, whatever that means. And uh, so I think they're going to get that in other places. I think our community where I live has a lot of driven, competitive, ambitious people that want to make an impact or uh, want to succeed, however they're defining success. And so if, the way I'm starting to think about it is if I zoom out, one of the parents that goes to a different high school in our area um, and their kids going through travel uh, soccer said to my wife and said, you know, we put our kids in these schools and then we're putting them on the travel soccer team. No wonder they're like feeling too much pressure. And that sort of captures it for me in a lot of ways. It's like, maybe there's ways to challenge them in other areas of life. Um, and maybe in sport, like I always say to my, my kids, I say, have fun and try your hardest. Like those are the two things. And when they get back in the car, I'm like, Oh, did you have fun? Um, and I usually say, Hey, I loved watching you out there. That's it. Um, we're not breaking it down. We're not like, and trust me, I can, I, I, I watch a lot of sports. Um, and so, yeah. And then the other thing I've started to do is ask them questions, you know, to empower them about what they want to do and how they want to do it and listen. And the last part I'm going to say is it's not yet. So just because we're not doing travel soccer at seven 
doesn't mean we can't at 10 or 12 or whenever it's appropriate. And once again, going back to the research for those that are listening, like specialization too early is not good physically, is not good developmentally. And I can't tell you how many high school kids I worked with that were 17 or 18 years old when I was focused on sports psychology who were done with their sport, burned out from their sport. Uh, by the way, college athletes that I worked with who were done with their sport, burned out from the sport. By the way, pro athletes that I worked with who were done with their sport, burned out with their sport. And so I think for me, when you ask, like, what do I want for my kids? I want them to have a sustaining life that fulfills them and that they also have joy with. I think, you know, success without joy is not true success. Of course, there's times that are hard, like writing a book, as I'm sure you felt it's not always enjoyment, but um, there's fulfillment there. There's impact there. There's a lot of other good stuff. So this was actually really helpful. I, I, I'm now I'm sending the check that you sent me back to you. <laughs> and I feel like we've sort of balanced out the uh, seesaw of therapy. Um, and so that it's just really helpful to sort of suss that out. And I hope it's helpful for people that are listening to this, because I do think we often think in a very narrow vacuum as far as our decision making, but by giving my kid more space to not maybe commit to three practices a week, they're going to maybe compete on the playground sometimes, or maybe in my backyard with another kid, or um, maybe they'll go explore something, or maybe we'll go to a game together and they'll get to watch professional athletes competing. Like th that ability to compete can come in so many different ways. The last thing I'll say, cause I've gone on a riff now, I grew up in an affluent area. You know, my, my, my parents did, did well. And, um, you know, people always ask like, Brian, how, how come you and your brothers are so driven? And it's not because my parents said you have to be great at something, you know, it, it was because they modeled certain behavior and, um, they asked us questions and they allowed us all to sort of find our way. And so like, I laugh when I, I've worked with professional sports teams and they're interviewing players for their drafts and they'll say, Oh, this guy isn't hungry because their parent was a professional athlete. And I'm like, Kobe Bryant, Stephen Curry, uh, you know, uh, you could go through like a litany of great, great athletes who, whose parents were professional athletes. It's like, it's kind of a ridiculous assertion. Um, so anyway, I bring it all back to, to you um, and thinking about sort of both and, and, and sabbatical, you mentioned being in Australia, you're a high achiever. Like you are someone who you mentioned being impatient in the book. Like you like to get things done. What's it like, been for you over the last four or five months being on sabbatical and, and being in a culture like Australia. And I've met Australians, like they are tremendous world travelers. Uh, but I'm sure the culture is different than what you're experiencing in Philadelphia. So can you talk about your experience and maybe the paradox that might be existing in your world of a sabbatical? Yes. Uh, and can I, um, take just a moment to reflect on all of the brilliance that you've just said about sport and maybe pull it because I think there's something important there, there's several things important there I just want to um, surface them for a second and then I am happy to talk about an incredible experience in Sydney and it, what I hear you saying in this 
sport decision is some really important things, which is that one of the pieces in the decision is you could zoom out and we can all do this and say, where can I get one component of this that's not in this decision? Where can I get the component of competitiveness that's not necessarily this decision, but another way to accommodate that? I think the other thing that you're saying is, um, you know, you can, for example, be on the travel team and still invite your kids to think about how they're going to grow and develop, sorry, the, the trophy team and still say, how are you going to grow? How are you going to develop? How are you going to get better even in that trophy team, right? There's ways to say, you know, how do you, how do you get what you get on the travel team, which is pushing yourself and trying new things, even if you're on the trophy team. The the other thing that I just, so, so how do you get both? I also really love how you said, you know, part of this is my kids' growth and development and their creativity and resilience. And one way we do that for kids, even at this age, is to bring the questions back to them and invite them to be actively thinking about the dilemmas that we're thinking about so that they're involved in that question. That's a huge place of growth. So even if the growth is not, can they kick the soccer ball harder, faster, stronger? It's, can they be harder, faster, stronger, more resilient in their own cognitive decision-making because I'm inviting them into this conversation to think about this issue as I am and invite them to, to show up and respect them as a um, someone who can think through these issues, that is showing your kid the respect and the invitation that their ideas matter. That probably is going to be the biggest growth learning opportunity for them to be hearty, resilient, creative kids. And I just want to say one more thing, because underlying the overarching decision that you're talking about is this question of passion versus performance, right? And that dilemma shows up all over the place. And we tend to pit those against one another. Think about the workplaces where, you know, I was working with a group of uh, pr principals of, uh, of independent schools. And there's this sense of like, well, do we focus on the teacher's well-being and make sure that their, con their conditions, they feel good? Or do we focus on this like performance and making sure they're performing well in the classroom? Well, we know there's so much research that says, actually, the more that we feel passionate, the more that we feel joyful, the more that we, the more engaged and the better performing we are. So that these opposing pressures actually reinforce each other. The teams that feel like they feel good about their interactions rather than they're constantly looking over their shoulder and saying, am I doing well enough for my team? Those teams perform better in sports. So so then, so one of the pieces of this both and is to say, oh my goodness, how do these two components reinforce one another and to teach your kids early on that passion and commit and, and feeling joyful and feeling good about the conditions and feeling supported by the people around them is a precondition for performance and doing well, rather than putting yourself in these situations where you feel like you're constantly worried about that is a huge lesson for them as well. So um, kudos to you. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, before we get to sabbatical, there's a word yeah. that you've used a couple of times beyond therapy in this conversation. And when I was prepping for this, I heard you use it a lot. And I'm curious about that word. Uh, it sounds very intentional in terms of your use, which is to invite or an invitation. Mm -hmm. What's your reasoning for using that word as often as you do? Hmm. Again, Brian, your questions. And now I'm going to throw back the seesaw of therapy. Um, so I, I might have to think about that a little bit. Um, um, 
I think an invitation is a chance to allow people to have their own point of view rather than telling them what they think and providing the respect to others that I'm curious about that point of view. Um, and uh, I think it it does play into these ideas of both and in that one of the ways that we tend to either or a lot is in relationship with other people. We In, in the book, we talk about the problem of we call it trench warfare or this problem of polarization or this problem in which if I take a point of view and someone else takes another point of view, we immediately see that as a threat or we defend against it or we decide that, you know, it, it, we get into the I'm right, you're wrong. You know, so we've talked about parenting a little bit. I can talk about partnering, too. This comes up in partnering all the time. And, you know, I, I like to say my husband and I um, are incredibly similar in the big picture of how we want to raise our kids and our values. And there's these moments where and they come up in these little small moments, like what time should bedtime be? I mean, these sort of nuanced moments where where we get into these like, well, I have a point of view and you have a point of view. The, the problem is, is that instead of assuming that we both have a point of view and there's a way in which we can bring those together into a better decision or, you know, we immediately go to, well, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, at 8 p.m. is bedtime, 10 p.m. is bedtime or, you know, there is no bedtime. And and um, we don't listen to one another and respect one another. OK, well, that's one thing in the context of what time is bedtime. It's another thing in the context of our national politics or in an organization where we have um, a, a strategic decision to make and we don't listen. And so maybe invitation, and, and we make an, a strong argument in the book that both anding is starting with recognizing these different points of view, honoring that I might not agree with you, but there is value in understanding that we have different components of a broader problem and the value in listening to one another. So maybe invitation is coming back to that idea that that there is a way in which we can engage in conversation with one another that doesn't start with me telling you what I think and then waiting for you to reject or engage with it. It's me starting with inviting and pulling out and trying to understand what you think and what you're engaged, what you're processing on, and then exploring how that can interweave with what I am. So I'd invite you to tell us about your experience in Sydney. Your kids are there. You've got 16-year-olds. Like They're in the heart of high school. I mean, it's one thing for someone to go on sabbatical. And, and a lot of university people have this opportunity more so than maybe business people do, but I know business people that do it as well. So talk about the experience and what it's been like for you. Yes. Uh, first of all, I think sabbatical is one of the greatest institutions of academia, and I so value that other professions are inviting people, inviting, are encouraging people to uh, do that as well, because we do live in a world where there has been tremendous burnout, uh, particularly, and that has only increased after the pandemic, where people are just feeling tired, and 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 so this value of taking a pause and reflecting in our careers is a huge opportunity. And I am so grateful to be in academia that encourages that. And, uh, you know, I hope people can really think about, about that. I remember, and I remember when I was um, after university, 
uh, I had a job lined up as a management consultant and I decided to put that on hold and spend a year living abroad. And I remember my very um, uh, brilliant, but very um, uh, focused roommate saying to me, my gosh, Wendy, you're going to be like a year behind in your career, uh, as opposed to this is the moment in time where there's experimentation, where there's reflection, where there's growth. And it was the greatest year. In fact, it was so great. I ended up extending it a second year uh, and have zero regrets for the growth and opportunity that that enabled. And so so fast forward to today, the the values that we are teaching our kids that the world is big, that there's lots of different people around the world, that we grow from taking a pause from our regular you know, routines and lives and give ourselves a very different experience has been huge and fabulous. And I am so grateful uh, for all of that. So, and Sydney's an incredible city. So I'm grateful to the city and to my colleagues in this city who have been hosting uh, me and us. My husband's also an academic here. What have you missed? What have we missed? Well, I, I think that's that, you know, we've missed our friends. We've missed our family. So we miss the people that we are in daily connection to. Uh, that's probably the hardest thing about being away is the people that surround us and support us. Um, and we will come back to that. Yeah, I think a fear for me is like I'm going to a funeral this weekend. And I think there's a fear of like missing moments that are important to relationships. And uh yet I lived in California for for two years and it felt like it was really, really far away. It, it was really far away. And one of the things that that experience did for me was a build independence. I did it early on when I was dating my now wife. We moved in together. We have a lot of great memories, but the other thing it did was it made me sort of appreciate as beautiful as the city was that I was staying at. I mean, Sydney is similar. I was in San Francisco. You're in Sydney, kind of similar in a way. Um, for me, what I, what I realized was what's most important is that I'm around people that I really, really care about and those relationships. And I would imagine there's a part of going on sabbatical that might reinvigorate uh, some of the values that your kids have and and that you have and your family has when you get back. Uh, and it, it's sort of a blend. It's can they bring the independence to go make new friends, to go explore a new city, to go explore a new culture, and then blend it with the, or have a both experience to continue on with those strong relationships. And the other reality is if those six months cause the relationships to not be there when you get back, those are probably not the relationships that are all that meaningful. So it's interesting as I hear you talk, there's underneath it, like a lot of that sort of paradoxical thinking intentionally or unintentionally probably as well. Yeah. You know, and again, just to make salient, make explicit some of the ideas, one of the ideas that we argue about this both and um, is what we call tightrope walking, uh, or the, we use the metaphor of tightrope walking. The idea is that when people think about both and, they, they tend to think, okay, is there this perfect win-win, this perfect solution where we can have everything? And that's not always the case. And we call that metaphor the mule. It's the this mule is the oldest biological hybrid. It's you know the donkey and the horse coming together. And we've been breeding them for, for millennia. It's not always the case where we have that perfect win-win where everything gets accommodated at the same moment. 
instead, some of the times in this both anding, we are what we call balancing or being consistently inconsistent or the tightrope walker. And what we mean is that we are making, if you are the tightrope walker, you are, as we said earlier, looking out to a long-term vision. So you've got something in the horizon you're trying to get to, and you are not balanced on the tightrope. You are constantly making these shifts left and right in order to go forward. So the application here is that in the moment, am I going to be in Philadelphia or am I going to be in Sydney or somewhere else? Okay, I have to make a choice of where I'm going to be. Am I going to be continuing on with the routines of my existing life where I'm going to be connected with the people that I that I have deep connections with that love me, that I, that I love? Or am I going to be in this new place with novel opportunity? Well, I'm going to make a choice for six months to go and experiment, try out this new place, but the old doesn't leave. And I'm going to go back to, to the people in, in Philadelphia. And if, and if somebody chooses to make a choice where they're going to move and be an expat and live somewhere, well, then how do they continue to go back and connect? And so our decisions, part of um, thinking about both and is pulling out our decisions into a broader perspective where we are making these micro shifts, oscillating, experimenting, balancing, trying along the way that not every decision is the ultimate um, moment of truth, but that we are living into the both and in this broader constellation of decisions, if you will. Can you take us through the decision process to move to the, like the farthest place in the world with the kids being the age that they are? I would imagine a lot of people listening to this would be like, oh, I cannot disrupt. Let's just use 16 <laughs> year old twins like during high school. Are you kidding? It's one thing to bring us like my wife and I talked about moving somewhere for a few months while our kids are in elementary school. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but you know, it, it's a different experience at six years old than it is 16 years old. Uh, can you talk about the decision-making and, and what went into that? Because you could have gone, you know, on sabbatical somewhere uh, less far. Yes. Well, I think that even taking kids on sabbatical when they're in the middle of high school and they're engaged in all of their activities is, is a really challenging thing. And by the way, part of taking one of the challenges is taking your kids on sabbatical when they're in high school, their grades matter, their transcripts matter. It's, it, you know, so this was not without some real, um, I don't know if they're obstacles, but things we had to navigate around them and their experience. And Brian, I'll just tell you that, um, so, so it has not been smooth sailing in terms of what has been absolutely fantastic is being in this new city and connecting into all of the amazing culture. And Sydney is a festival city. The city loves its festivals and we have partaken in all of that. And we have traveled around Australia and we have talked about the different cultures, but school-wise, it's not been a walk in the park. Um, it's hard to jump in for six months uh, to in, in high school to make friends, to find a tremendously different culture. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just say that has been a challenge and it's been a challenge particularly for my 16 year old daughter who was seen and valued and honored as a leader and an activist in her high school in uh, Philadelphia and came to this new school that neither knew who she was knew what she what she was about and had a set of values that were very different than the ones that that she grew to love uh, it was a set of values that's even as Sydney is a tremendously progressive city, the school that she was in was very much about hierarchy and um, 
living within the rules and there's a very strict uh, uniform dress code here across the country that is very British and Commonwealth that is very antithetical to what she has experienced. And um, uh, and so there was some hard moments in terms of in terms of learning how to engage with this culture. Well, that too has been a learning opportunity, which um, has been how how do you navigate in a space that does not is is not ideal for who you are? Um, where are the places where she can push back? Where are the places that are you know the the battles that are worthwhile to fight? Which ones are not? Um, she has taken on a bit of a rebellious uh, activist approach to push back against some of the uniform uh, regulations and the processes around that. And um, so that too has has offered, you know, in, in some challenging ways and in some opportunistic ways, the chance to reflect on what is the value of the places that, you know, her current school in, in Philadelphia, how can she be an activist? Where can she be an activist? When is it valuable to be an activist? So uh, there's lots of lessons that we didn't even anticipate that have come up here. So I'm born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area. So we're familiar with with activists. And yeah. <laughs> and and I say that to sort of transition. When I went to Australia, the questions that people would ask us is about our government. And then I'd tell them where I was from. And they wanted to ask me even more questions about our government. And when you travel outside the U.S., you learn real quick how much of an impact our government has on the rest of the world. And when I was reading your stuff and prepping for this, I started to think about, all right, polarization, which you mentioned earlier, if you were hired by Congress tomorrow and they said, hey, Wendy, we are recognizing that our politics have really become polarized to a point that is detrimental to the country. And they said, please help. Uh, what would you do? Oh, um, Brian, my co-author Marianne Lewis and I talk deeply. We're, we're, we have this conversation. What's the next book? And we both feel so deeply that this issue of polarization is underlying so many of the, we, we face a world with so many crises and yet we can't push forward on them because instead of moving forward on these issues, we're just squabbling about um, that has to do with all kinds of issues of identity, ego, party politics and all of the rest. So it's a huge issue. Um, I am a big fan. I recently read Adam Kahane's book, Collaborating with the Enemy. The underlying idea, which underlies this notion of both and, is that uh, that in order, you know, activism has a very black and white perspective. I am going to assert what I believe into um, and and be loud and proud about it. And there is a place for that, and it's an important piece. And it doesn't always get stuff done. What it what we really need in order to move forward is more nuanced diplomacy and collaboration across opposing ideas. And that requires building relationships, building trust. In collaborating with the enemy, Adam Kahane talks about the work that he has done with big governments of an opposing perspectives that starts with sitting, you know, he, he talks about three things. The first is that he talks about, and I'll say it in my language, 
starting with adopting a paradox mindset, a both and mindset, a perspective that says it's not I'm right, you're wrong, but we're going to go into this conversation assuming that there is right on both sides so that I can be more open to broader possibilities. It's not left or right, Democrat or Republican, my party or your party. We have to be able to open up to that conversation. And by the way, that's really hard to do when you're at the political level and the media is shining a light on that right wrong because that is so that's what sells papers. So you have to be able to and what influences, through. sorry to interrupt, and what influences yeah. their potential for maintaining their job, right? Like uh, if they are viewed as taking an oppositional view to the people that voted them in office, then they will get voted out. So there's also, you mentioned psychological safety earlier, uh, politics and psychological safety as it relates to making decisions based on what's best for the country is also a paradox in its own right. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of um, Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized and his podcast where he explores this issue in more depth. He articulates very clearly what gets you into office, what gets you elected is not the skills that you need to be in office. And that's often a problem that we have. It's a problem at, at the political level. It's a problem also at, you know, you know, we'll go back to the soccer team. What gets you into the soccer team being competitive and the best and better than anyone else because you beat them out to get onto the soccer team is not what gets you to be the best player, which is actually collaborating and being more of a teammate. So so you can generalize that problem, but that is certainly part of the problem. And if we're going to look at this, the leaders, whether it's political leaders or more broadly, need to have a varied toolkit in how they lead. So you need to both articulate your party platform to get you into office and know how to work across the aisle. I mean, it sounds so quaint and idealized of a like 1940s era but we've lost that that um, skill in democracy. We are, and, and actually, I think that we, as the American people, we as the people broadly, are a little bit complicit in that because we reinforce that us them through our social media, through the fact that we don't talk to people who have a different point of view than us because it's so hard because we'd rather let let that go rather than let go of sometimes we let go of the politics rather than the friendships but we don't have the skills to have that dialogue and that point of connection you know so so again it's it's having that broader both and where we can respect that even politics that we don't agree with underlying those ideas might have a point of view that where we can find common ground and then, you know, Adam Kahani talks about the value, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier, of small steps experimenting. We don't have to go to what I like to call the Jerusalem, the like big picture, you know, the, the, the like in the Israeli-Palestinian, like who gets Jerusalem? Let's just start with small steps. It's not what decision we have to make about gun control, but there was a brilliant uh, you know, guns or no guns, it's let's take small steps to try and understand each other's perspectives and start with with that and find the points of connection. There was a, a brilliant op-ed after one of the many shootings that we have had recently in the United States where the two former governors of Tennessee, one Republican and one Democrat said, you know, we take really different points of view on this, but the important part is that we're in conversation, we trust one another, and it is through small steps that we can actually see the common ground. And frankly, there's a lot more common ground on many of these issues than there is difference. So, 
you know, it, it sounds so idealistic because it is not the world that we live in right now. Um, in Adam Kahani's book, he has this wonderful quote. It sounds like, you know, it's a miracle, but, but, you know, that miracle almost seems more of a reality than actually anything else at this moment. Well said, as you were talking, I was thinking, I play Wednesday night basketball and we're recording this one on Thursday. And last night, I usually guard this other guy because we're the two shortest guys on the court. And I've known this other guy my entire life. We lived in the same neighborhood. Our moms were uh, best friends from childhood. We know each other. And there have been many games from our childhood where the game did not actually conclude because someone was stomping off the court. And maybe I'm complicit. I'll take some ownership. But I think most people that know this person would say he can get hot and can get heated. And I've never really known how to handle him. Um, but last night, there was a ball that went off both of our hands. And I thought it was pretty clear that it was off him. He thought it was off me. And everybody else kind of agreed with me, uh, including his brother and, uh, and, and who was on his team. And so we started going the other direction and they were going to give me the ball. And then a few people were like, oh, we'll shoot for it. And he was like, no, no, no. But he was still sort of chirping. And I turned to him and I was like, man, I understand your perspective. I, you know, I could see how it, it you would have thought that that was off me. I, I just thought that it was off you. And it simmered. Like he simmered. Yeah. We started laughing. And I was like, yeah, man, I could see, I could see that. He's like, yeah, because your hand was over there. I'm like, yeah, I could see that. And I still think it was off you, like from my perspective, because you were hitting the ball out. And it was just like a little moment to your point that allowed us to have a dialogue. And we often don't have those moments because it's you versus me and me versus you. And and, and we stay in there. And then I want to pull on another thread that you brought up that beyond politics and back to sports. And I think the beauty of sports is sometimes you can see it easier. There aren't Democrats and Republicans and you don't have as much bias. And sometimes in sport, you just see it happen and you can watch it and observe it. And there is a winner and there is a loser. And, and so it gets cleaner. Um, but there's something you said that I want to highlight, which is around leadership. And I have seen this over and over again. Teams value talent more than they value leadership. And all of the work that I've done over the years on, on sports teams is that is often a mistake. First of all, of course, talent matters. Everyone in any in any industry, you need to be talented to be great at what you do. And uh, the separator, I love how you said it, you need the talent to get into the room. But at the end of the day, you play a team sport. It's about the team being the best they can be. And, and what causes that? It's leadership. So like I've worked with this, uh, I think John Maxwell quote, where leadership is influence. And I've sort of expanded it to say, Leadership is having a positive influence on the team. And at the end of the day, like I want to be around a team with other people who are thinking about how can I positively influence the team? And there are a multitude ways of doing that. And so I can see that in sport, but perhaps part of the problem in politics is people don't always remember what team they're on, right? Like the team is supposed to be the United States of America. Um, for some, it might involve globalization, which gets tricky. I know Obama talked a lot about the paradox. I think you highlighted in the book, like thinking about the world versus what's best for the U.S. and in our capitalistic society. Um, but it's interesting, like if we all said the team was the U.S., what might that look like? Um, 
And perhaps what people are doing is they're saying Democrat and Republican. And actually what we're seeing is actually not even that right now, where you have, I mean, we just witnessed it, uh, Republicans going at Republicans, Democrats going at Democrats. So as I say all that, I'm thinking out loud, like perhaps the problem is people don't really understand what team they're on. And like, are are they willing to sacrifice part of their more tribal, smaller team for a bigger, greater team? And if they believe that they're representing that smaller team, it might mean that they're going against it. I'm curious to get your perspective as I wove in uh, my basketball game last night, <laughs> sports in general, and then we went back into politics. Well, Brian, it's a bit of a professional hazard that when I start hearing the A or B, I go to both. And in some ways, I think this is a classic A or B, the am I part of, you know, which team am I in? Is it me or the team? Is it the Democrats or the, the country? Is it the country or the world? There are all these situations where actually, how could we think about both? What does it look like to advance myself on the team and my needs and my skills and I, you know, and be competitive and advance the team? This is a classic tension that came up in a in a book that really informed so much of my thinking. Um, uh, Ken Wynn Smith and David Berg in the 19, late 1980s wrote a book called Paradoxes of Group Life. This is a classic tension in teams, which is. Uh, in order for a team to be successful, I as the individual have to advance and be my best, but that's often a competitive stance against my other team members and enable the team and, and, and support and enable the collective team, which often requires me to subdue myself in service of the team. Well, the more that I, the better I am, the better the team is, the better the team is, the more it creates resources for me. They enable each other, but we don't see it that way. Same too with our country. In order for our, you know, Democrats and Republicans will both rise if there is an increased benefit to the United States. But as we are tearing each other down, we're tearing down the country along with it, which tears down both parties along the way. So what's the both and in, in those approaches? You know, I was just listening uh, to my friend, colleague, uh, Adam Grant, who some of your listeners might know, a, a brilliant organizational uh, psychologist. And Adam and I um, have done some work together back when he was an undergraduate. And, uh, you know, he he was reinforcing, and I think this is really an important point, which is that think about this in the context of organizations, where organizations uh, say that the high performer is the individual star in the organization who's able to bring in the most money or able to whatever it might be. But if that high performer is defined only by their individual goals and not by a set of metrics of how they raise up other people along the way, create the conditions for other people's success, then what you have is a highly competitive culture where people are not performing well, and that's going to take down the culture overall. So here's where I, I would both and this, which is how do you both, how do you create the conditions in the sports team, in our politics, in our organizations, where there is both in your language, individual and leadership, or what I would say, individual performance and the value of enabling collective performance. And we can do that in organizations by highlighting that both of these are valued. It's not just your own individual performance, but your performance and your success is dependent on how you raise up and create the conditions for other people's success as well. Yeah, maybe we'll close with that way of thinking around culture. Like I've started to understand culture as a behavior, vocabulary, but also what is it that we reward? What is it 
what's the bad behavior we tolerate? Like every organization tolerates some form of bad behavior. Maybe you don't put that behavior on your walls with your mission statement and your values, but there is an underlying, we're all imperfect humans and every organization will tolerate some bad behavior, whether it's being late to a meeting or not responding to an email in 24 hours or uh, talking poorly to somebody like we all tolerate some some form of bad behavior and then also what we fire for right like those are the elements that dictate a, a culture and so you've got me really thinking about all right we often do it around individual performance but what would it take for us to or i should say and what would it take for us to also um do that around around the team and the organization uh and so you've got me pondering that and maybe that's a good question for us all to ponder as we step into the organizations that we're part of or the teams that we're a part of or even the family units that we're a part of to think about how we can help maybe make this world a little bit better uh wendy this has been an absolute blast it's not surprising uh i mentioned before we started recording my book is all about polarities um and in your book you talk about being humble and confident i took it one step further for better or for worse i talked about being humble in preparation and actually arrogant in performance uh which we <laughs> could have a sidebar conversation about the merits of that but when i read humble and confident in your book i was like oh yeah wendy and i are going to jam just fine um if people want to learn more about the book about your work uh where's the best place for them to do that yeah um they can uh see our website which is uh both and thinking.net both and thinking.net there's um tons of resources there in terms of video and uh additional uh, other podcasts we'll put this one up there um there is uh a, a book discussion guide and there's a link to the book and um and as I as we started, uh, if people do read it and it resonates, please do reach out. We are so uh, thrilled to hear how these ideas land for people. I can't tell you how much it means uh, when you put something out in the world and you're worried that it sucks and you get an email from someone that says that it was really, really impactful. And to get an email from a stranger is just mind blowing. And so when Wendy says that, seriously, find a way to get in touch with her. She's on LinkedIn, also at Wendy K. Smith. Uh, she's also on Twitter, but she's not posting there that often. She's at Prof Wendy Smith in case she does come back to the Twitterverse in a more consistent way. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if you enjoyed today's conversation, shoot me a note. I'll forward it on to Wendy so that she can she can hear from you about how wonderful she was. Um, and thanks for bringing paradox uh, into our world. It's really important. Uh, it's changed how I think and how I see the world. And I'm grateful for people like you that are doing the work and, and sharing it with all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. So grateful to a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. In order for a team to be successful, I as the individual have to advance and be my best, but that's often a competitive stance against my other team members, and enable the team and, and, and support and enable the collective team, which often requires me to subdue myself in service of the team. Well, the more that I, the better I am, the better the team is. The better the team is, the more it creates resources for me. They enable each other, but we don't see it that way. Same too with our country. In order for our, you know, Democrats and Republicans will both rise if there is an increased 
benefit to the United States, but as we are tearing each other down, we're tearing down the country along with it, which tears down both parties along the way.